Hi, and thank you for joining us. My name is Nicole Tanner. I am an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. I'm happy to have Dr. Gerard Silvestri with us today. He is the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology and full professor at the Medical University of South Carolina. Today we're going to be talking about the art of contract negotiation. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to do this for us. Um, certainly negotiating a contract is something that many uh, early career professionals are concerned about and really don't have a lot of guidance in. Um, so uh, just to kind of start off, Dr. Silvestri, when and how did you get involved in becoming an advisor uh, for negotiating contracts? Nicole, and thanks for having me. And, and I can't emphasize more how important it is to uh, do a reasonably good job at negotiating your contract, um, either your first contract or uh, contracts afterwards. And I don't think it's something they teach us in medical school and certainly not something in residency or fellowship and even as junior faculty. Um, I, I kind of got into this uh, really loosely. Um, I uh, have a degree in health services research, and part of that degree including getting uh, some experience in health economics. Um, and when I got to the medical university uh, 25 years ago, um, I uh, got assigned to a committee where I uh, eventually became the chair of a committee for almost 20 years where I negotiated contracts for our practice plan. Um, and through that negotiating process, I kind of got known as the guy who can negotiate contracts, and then the fellows slowly uh, started migrating towards me to look at their contracts for either going into private practice or into academics, um, and now it's uh, almost uh, every year a stream of fellows come by, and we, we actually start the process way early and talk about what to look for in a job, talk about contracts, and then review their uh, contract before they go out and sign it. So it's been actually a really fun thing. Um, the fellows who aren't in my lab, I, I get to uh, talk to them on a more personal level about what their goals are in life. And so it's been, it's been a great experience uh, for me. Um, and I've also worked with junior faculty looking at jobs at other institutions um, or uh, uh, looking to come to our institution uh, to take faculty positions. So um, it, it, all the negotiating parts of this are actually quite the same. And so um, uh, in preparation for this, there was a question about whether I would talk about private practice or academia. And, and, and honestly, I think there are, are uh, tenants to negotiating a contract that are really the same for both. Great. Um, well, so then let's start with some uh, other questions about negotiating contracts. And I guess really at the start of this all time frame, how, how early should a fellow really start looking for a job? I think, you know, I see fellows kind of start super early, others that kind of wait towards their third year. I mean, is there really a sweet spot or a good time to, to start looking for a job? Well, it's been a really interesting phenomenon. Um, I, I remember not signing my contract until um, March of my third year, um, but certainly fellows have, particularly in private practice, have now uh, come to start signing their contracts uh, really in the middle to the end of their second year or even at the beginning of their third year. I don't know that there's a right time frame for this. Um, I, look, Everyone's going to get a job. We need to start with that. Um, pulmonary and critical care is a really um, hot uh, uh, topic. It's uh, it's the profession is uh, really underserved almost everywhere. So I, I wouldn't worry about getting a job. Um, I think it's more important from a time frame frame perspective to uh, to get the right job, not just the first job, um, and not just to rush through the process uh, unless the perfect opportunity comes along earlier. Um, I I. Would would take my time and make sure that I'm getting the process right rather than getting it early. I, I think you're safe 
even if you uh, don't sign your contract until uh, February and March of your of your third year. I would say this: um, this is a separate thing from academics to private practice. Academic uh, wheels turn much more slowly than do private practice wheels. So um, I, I, people get very nervous about uh, academic contracts, like, well, they haven't signed, they haven't sent it back. Uh, the wheels of academia definitely turn a lot slower. It has to work its way through the college and through the dean's office sometimes and through the practice plan. So, you know, in private practice, they can sign you a contract tomorrow. And, and that's, not as, that's not good either. I mean, you want to take your time, make sure you get it right uh, rather than early. So I know I'm not giving a very specific answer. I think it's different from everyone. But the phenomenon I've seen is that fellows are, tr- are signing their contracts a lot earlier than they used to in the past. All right. Well, so in line with that, you know, you talked about picking the right practice. Um, what what are the big things that you think um, individuals should consider when they're choosing a practice, whether that be a private practice job or a job in academics? What are the big picture type of items that, that really they should think about prioritizing? The first is, are you going to go into academics or private practice? And that's a decision that is really, uh, um, I think, a difficult one for many people. Um, and I, I actually advise fellows to, who are on the fence about that to look at both. Um, you know, for the first time, someone else is paying for you to travel somewhere. So if you get invited to an interview and it's someplace you'd even think about, you know, take the invitation. If it's an academic place, take take a look. If it's private practice, um, take a look. And it, that might really solidify in your mind um, which one to look at. Um, I actually don't like the idea of just uh, not going into one of these places with a few of the um, things that you would want in a practice, whether it be academics or practice, uh, private practice, uh, in your mind or even written down. And so for me, honestly, the most important thing is culture. Um, What is the culture of that practice, be it uh, private practice or academia? What is the culture, the culture of the group that you're going to be working with? These are people you're going to be spending 50, 60 hours a week with. Um, Does that culture fit your culture? And so I'll just give you in private practice a couple of examples. Um, One example is if you go into a practice and the first thing out of the mouth of the private practice partners is, you are going to be making X with the potential to make Y um, in your first and second year. Well, you you don't have to go much further to understand the culture of that practice is revenue. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's sort of the American way, and if that's what you uh, are into, you need to understand that. If you it, Conversely, if you go into a practice and the first thing out of them, uh, the, uh, the partner's mouth is, hey, look, like we all have young families, um, we want to turn our pager off at 6 o'clock at night. Therefore, we have a system set up with night coverage, uh, and uh, everyone turns their pager off at 6. We only practice in a single hospital, so you don't have to be at three to four hospitals. We have X amount of vacation time per year. You know, you're not going to make as much money as in this other practices that you might be looking at, but um, this is our culture. And, and, you know, they might not completely come out and say it like that, but you will get a feel for what the culture of that practice is. And neither one of those cultures is wrong. Um, you just have to decide for yourself what's your culture. So culture to me is the most important thing, and that extends to academia. If you are uh, looking at academic practices and the first words out of a division chief's mouth is, hey, look, like, you know, it's a new world order and you're going to be doing seven clinics a week, um, and you, you know, generally the protected time is minimal to none. 
Um, well, then you understand that culture. Um, if if you go into another academic institution and they say, hey, look, we're going to do everything we can to protect your time in the first three years so that you can get some grant funding, um, uh, you know, that's a different culture. And it, it, neither one of those is wrong. If you want to be a clinician educator, perhaps that first option is better for you. If you want to be a, a clinician or basic scientist, you need that second option. So culture is really critical. I think the second thing is geography. Um, you need you probably uh, want to think about your sort of stretch places to live. Um, and I think, you know, again, most of these people uh, coming out, um, uh, and again, this doesn't, it, it, it matters a little bit. If you have a young family and you want to be around, have your children be around grandparents, I think it's important for you to think about the distance and geography from uh, family and, and friends. And, and that also extends to people who don't have families or don't choose to have families. Um, you know, you, you don't want to maybe go to an area where you're isolated. Um, on the other hand, if you've always lived in one part of the country and you want to uh, explore and be an adventurer and if you're an East Coast person and you want to go to the mountains in, 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 in Colorado, well, that's a completely different thing. And if you don't have anything tying to you, you, you to the certain place, hey, man, take a look. Um, but I think geography is probably more important than people give it credit for. And then also significant others, physicians uh, uh, tend to wake up in the morning, grab their coffee, grab their lunch, and go to work. Um, and we tend to have fairly long hours, and so you have to consider what uh, the other person in your uh, life, if you have another person in your life, what what's going to be good for them? Because you know we're used to the uh, culture of work and um, and and being around other like-minded people at work and working pretty hard. Um, and so I I think if you, if you don't account for um, the other partner and family in that relationship, I think you're doing yourself a disservice to the point where, honestly, um, I think that might trump um, the the best job, um, so the, the the perfect job for a job that keeps everyone happy. And so for me, that's a really important thing. So those are the kinds of things I look for in private practice. I tell people, hey, man, like, look, going to three hospitals is going to be pretty difficult if you're going to three hospitals. Uh, look, I mean, if you're joining uh, just one other person, you need to understand what calls are going to look like unless they have a specific call schedule, um, that type of thing. So I, I think those things are important. Thanks. I think that's really great advice um, as people consider what to be looking for um, as they, you know, kind of identify where they want to be, who they want to be with, um, and what the practice should look like. So let's say that uh, the person goes on the first interview and, you know, kind of gets it narrowed down. Oftentimes folks will go on a second visit to try to get more information. What do you think is okay to ask about on a second visit? What kinds of things should you drill down, um, you know, maybe without being too offensive to whoever it is that you're interviewing with? Yes, that's a great point, and the the point about being offensive is is really important. On the other hand, you have to balance that with getting all the information you can, and and I really think that people worry a little bit too much about it being unseemly to ask uh, during the second interview. So look, the first interview is a general get-to-know-you date. Um, they're going to roll out the red carpet. They're going to show you all of their um, their the beautiful things that they have. Um, they're not going to show you their pimple. They're not going to show you uh, what's under the hood of the car, right? So the second interview, you really want to plan that much, much better than the first interview. And it doesn't matter whether you're in private practice or in academics. You need to go in with a very specific, detailed list of, of questions in mind. And you don't 
again, you, you can be very nice about how you ask those questions. And I'm going to give you a few examples. So, for example, um, one of the ways to negotiate without uh, being, quote, offensive to the partners or to a division chief or anyone else is to ask to meet with a business manager, uh, whether it be in practice or not. And the reason you want to meet with the business manager is because they understand business, they are geared towards business, and, and honestly, they'll be impressed if you ask them questions uh, about uh, what's under the hood of that practice. So, for example, if you, if you go in, you want to ask one really important question that a lot of fellows forget to ask is, hey, man, talk to me a little bit more about my benefit structure, you know, my dental, my medical. Um, now, look, you can't really negotiate those things, but it's really important to know those when you're comparing practices. If one group puts a lot more into your retirement uh, than another group, well, that's that's actually extra salary that you might not, you know, you might not have thought about. Um, and it's sort of tax-free salary, so you want to you wanna make sure you're looking at that. If you're going to be obligated to pay 300 months uh, towards your health benefits in one practice, but 600 a month in another, and if you have a huge deductible in one versus the other, these are all questions a business manager would be happy to ask, answer um, that the division chief or a, a partner may not even know or it may put them off a little. Um, getting that third person involved is really important. And so you want to ask them um, particular things also about uh, financial generation. So uh, you would think that this 10 years ago this wouldn't apply to academics, but it certainly does now. And, you know, whereas in academics now, um, we're all on uh, RVU uh, generation, relative value units. You need to generate this much to produce this much salary. You want to know the formula, right? And so um, what? how many RVUs does a pulmonologist in private practice make? Well, let's call it 8,000. Um, this is how many you're expected to generate. This is the dollars per RVU. You need to understand how your salary is going to be structured, both in academics and in private practice. And so in academics, it might include a medical directorship or some educational uh, money or protected time given to you by the division or division uh, chief for the first three years. In private practice, it, it might be that the hospital's paying a portion of your salary uh, and things like that. So those are questions on the second interview that you want to ask. For academics, and this doesn't apply as much to private practice, you really want to ask about specific people you might be working with. And I'm talking to the thoracic oncology group right now, um, but you can decide which you know, who you'd want to meet with. But for me, it, when I was interviewing, it was really important for me to meet with thoracic surgeon, with the cancer center director, with radiation oncology. Now, that's not something a pulmonary division chief's going to necessarily know you want to meet with. And so you need to uh, tell them, hey, I'm coming for a uh, second interview. Would you mind if I met with this person, this person, this person, or the head of this department, this department, this department? I'm telling you, you're not putting off the division chief. In fact, they'll be impressed. Why? Because you're doing the preparations to come in and help them with their program or help build a program. They may also have some ideas about who you should meet with, and you should graciously say, absolutely, I'd be happy to meet with that person. In private practice, I also think it's important to meet with all the members of the uh, practice, as many as you can meet with. Um, and, you know, again, 
the thing in private practice that I like so much is the informal settings. Uh, when uh, you and your significant other, you and your spouse are out to dinner, um, you can ask questions like, "Hey, how are the schools? What's the real estate market look like?" When you you know when you're in a more relaxed setting, and you are they are soaking everything you can in uh, during that first interview. And the second interview, you then want to say, "Hey, you know, it might be nice to meet with a real estate uh, agent, or I might want to go tour one of the schools. Would would that be possible?" So. I can't tell you exactly what to do, but that second interview is critical so that you can really mine information um, that will help you make a better decision. That's really informative and, and I think stuff that we wouldn't really necessarily think about, especially with the benefit structure. So thanks for that. Um, you know, just kind of thinking about it, though, so you go to you go on your second visit. Now it's time to come up with uh, the terms. And so what kinds of things do you believe are negotiable and non-negotiable um, as you put forth a contract? That's a great question. Let me, let me start with a couple things. One is nothing means anything unless it's in writing. I want to repeat that. Nothing means anything unless it's in writing. I do not care if they pr- promise you the world. If it's not in writing, it, 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 it's as if it doesn't exist. So all the first tenet of a contract is it has to be in writing. The second part of this is what's negotiable. Not You know, you'll hear business people say everything is negotiable. The, the one thing I would say is you really should not negotiate. You should not overly negotiate or even negotiate salary. And And here's why. Look. First of all, they have an internal uh, hierarchy for their salary, and one one of the things that division chiefs or even in private practice are going to do is protect that hierarchy. They're not going to have some, I call them the kids, they're not going to have some kid come in and make more than someone who's been there for 10 years. So this idea that, you know, well, you know, if I can only get 10,000 more out of them, I'd be happy. Um, I, I would be very careful about doing that unless you really have a skill set that is so necessary um, in that practice that is, in fact, worth a lot more than they're willing to give you. For example, if you're an interventional pulmonologist or a sleep physician or you have extra education in something, a transplant pulmonologist. But if you're a sort of general pulmonary critical care person, you're coming into academia, that hierarchy is set, right? But there are other things that you can get that are the that are actually the equivalent of extra salary um, um, and, 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 and actually might make you look more favorable um, both in a private practice and in a, uh, in a faculty setting. What are those things? In, in academics, it would be extra education. So I'll give you an example that I used, which is I negotiated into my initial contract um, to go back up to where I did my fellowship at Dartmouth and do uh, a ma- the Master's in Health Services Research. Um, this is 1994 $5 um, when most of the people listening to this podcast were watching SpongeBob on TV. Um, <laughs> and, and it was there that I um, uh, uh, did the master's. Even at that time, that master's cost like twenty-eight dollars or $30,000. And the university here, I said, look, I think this is important. I think it's important for my career, this whole health services thing, which was sort of brand new at the time. Um, I think will lead to uh, grant funding, great opportunities, and I would like to do that. Is that something that you would consider? And, and my division chief, um, God rest his soul, Steve Son at the time, said, 
yeah, we'll, we'll be happy to uh, pay for that. Now, he wasn't going to give me 20000 extra in salary uh, for that time frame, he, but he was very willing to give me extra education. And so I use that as an example. Um, equipment, <coughs> if you're in private practice and you want a certain piece of equipment, you can negotiate that. One of the things I've seen people not you know, negotiate a little bit is that the hospital, if they're paying part of your salary in private practice, has been willing to um, do some loan repayment for you if you stay a certain <laughs> amount of time. Now, you can ask about that. You you don't need to demand it, but you can say, hey, you know, um, you know, some of the places I've been looking at, um, uh, if I stayed for three to five years each year, they would forgive X amount of my loans. And that's the equivalent of getting a raise. And so, so I think you can negotiate a number of those different things. Secret- I think, Gerard, you know, we were talking about secretarial support, what was negotiable and non-negotiable. And so you had just talked about all the different things that you talked about education um, and uh, equipment and then other specific things like salary. We were about 20 minutes into the call when it died. So um, okay. I guess um, and we I think just... I was talking about uh, negotiating things like secretarial support. Um, and uh, those and, and office space and computers, those are all things that are negotiable. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is be careful about how many things you ask for. Um, don't make it a laundry list. Uh, make it things you know you're going to need uh, to make yourself successful in practice and make sure that you are really looking at through this through the eyes of uh, what the other person needs. Um, there's this good book by a guy named Fisher called Getting to Yes. How do you negotiate with someone else? And, and the important parts of that book, it's a negotiating book. Uh, it's a, actually about negotiating world peace, but it, it, the tenets are the same. You have to look at this through the eyes of the other person. So what is someone in academic or even private practice looking for? Well, they're looking for a competent young professional. They're looking uh, at uh, someone uh, who they can get at a reasonable price who will fit in culturally um, and 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 that's that's it I mean and so you, when you're negotiating with someone you need to see what what their view of this is if they see you asking for uh, fifth an item of 15 different things um, they may look at you and say well this is going to be a high maintenance person I don't know that I want that so you negotiate the things that you really need to be successful now some of the things they may have already assumed that, that you were going to get, and it's just a matter of asking, hey, um, will I have uh, an academic office or uh, will I have access to computers um, and, and secretarial support or administrative assistant type of things? And those are sometimes left best for the business manager rather than negotiating those with, uh, with, anyone, with anyone else, like with the direct partners. So that sort of triangular negotiation is often uh, very useful tool. Um, but I would be very careful about what you ask for. But do, there are some big things. And if, for example, you want to get extra education in terms of a master's degree or um, if loan repayment is very important to you, those are things that you put at the top of your list and then sort of give on the easy things to give on. Um, for people in academics, there is nothing more valuable than time. And that is something a division chief can give you, maybe less so today than in the past, but um, you must have uh, uh, time and to develop your academic career. And so what you need to know is, am I going to get 20% effort protected, 30%, and for how long are you guaranteeing that effort? Um, and so that, that, that sort of brings me to this negotiation piece. 
And there is one thing I like people would do before they get the actual written contract, and that is write to one another and and memorialize what you're writing. So if, if for example, a division chief or someone's going to offer you a job, um, you, know, you say, hey, could you just send me a letter, an offer of letter? And not necessarily the official contract, which may be much different. And then once you get that offer of letter, dissect it, and um, if there's something completely missing in that, like loan repayment or, uh, you know, a master's degree or the protected time, you write back and always sort of be positive. Thank you so much for your, your wonderful offer letter. Um, and, you know, uh, I've read through it and I'm extremely excited about the possibility of working there. Um, you know, there's one thing, though, that we talked about that's kind of missing from this letter. Um, and just just I just want to remind you that we talked about, uh, you know, payment for this graduate degree or or you know the loan repayment options or um, or the or uh, you know an office or secretaries but what have you and then you send it back to them and I, you know so just I just want to make sure that I wasn't missing something here uh, thank you so much um, look forward to hearing from you and then they write back to you and say oh oh gosh yeah I forgot that that was in there and they put it in a letter yes you will also be guaranteed uh, 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 over the next two years for us to pay for a graduate degree at the university, um, et cetera, or, you know, CME dollars to go uh, to national meetings or protect the time. Um, it's extremely important to get that uh, down if you're in academics. And, and in private practice, the, if it's the call schedule that's important to you, uh, et cetera, you, you want to make sure that you get those things in writing. There's no such thing as, as a contract unless it's in writing. And that's before the formal contract comes. And then you get the formal contract. And again, I would read it very carefully. And I know a lot of people go out and find a lawyer um, uh, to look at these. I I'd be really careful there. Now, word of mouth, there's a lot of uh, some lawyers who actually are quite good at this. And other lawyers, and I've seen, you know, uh, fellows pay, you know, five to $600 or $750 to have a lawyer look at this. Um, you know, they often don't understand healthcare. Um, so you want your lawyer to have some experience looking at a healthcare contract. And quite frankly, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure the lawyers have been extremely helpful. Um, but what, but what I would say is read your contract very carefully, read the fine print, uh, very carefully. And understand that if you're working, um, uh, for a, a, a hospital-owned practice, this is a private practice thing, uh, and then I'll talk about universities in a second, but it's boilerplate. And there are, like, not a lot of changes that can be made in boilerplate contracts unless they're addended. And so what you have to do then is to write an addendum to that. The, the one thing I would tell you that I've seen that the two things in private practice that have bothered me in contracts is um, the, if they're writing a hospital-based group practice that's owned by a hospital, which is much more common now, um, they put in a lot about how they can get rid of you. So they, they can say, look, like um, we have the right uh, within 90 days to notify you for cause. So those are things like you know defrauding the government and billing practices, inappropriate uh, inappropriate uh, treatment of staff. Etc. Then they also put in this clause that says something like, and we also can provide ni 90 days uh, uh, written notice that you're out of the practice, uh, that that you're done. And so, to me, like that is horrible. And um, what I've often asked is go back and ask them about that. And they say, oh, no, 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 like that never happens in our practice. This never happens. Um, but what's not written in there is an appeals process. And so um, a lot of times there's a medical staff, uh, uh, a medical staff 
for the whole hospital, and that medical staff has an executive committee. And so what I ask people to do is to, you know, write in the appeals process. And, and oftentimes there is an appeals process, it's just not in the contract, where if they're uh, asked to leave without cause, um, in 90 days, and that's just horrible for a family to have to up and move in 90 days. There has to be an appeals process, um, and 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 trust me, medical staff uh, is not going to let someone go unless they're grossly incompetent or have legal issues. Um, uh, they'll protect their doctors, and so you want to make sure you build that protection into your contract. Um, you know, uh, make sure that everything you talked about is in your contract in terms of benefit structure, in terms of salary. Um, you know that. That's the easy one in terms of uh, uh, all of the things that you want in your contract. And just read it very carefully and then either have a lawyer or somebody who knows something about contracts uh, do that. In academia, the same applies. It used to be – so I never received a contract when I first worked at the university for years. Um and uh ours was basically a letter and uh you know that letter actually is a legal document if if both people sign it um but now all universities have boilerplate contracts and and by the way they're almost exactly like um like the ones in private practice, including, by the way, a non-compete clause. And, and that's something I thought I'd take a minute or two to talk about. Um, non-compete clauses are really set up for the protection of the entity, the university, the group practice. Um, and, and you can understand why they'd want to do that. They help you build your practice, and what they don't want you to do is take your practice across the street. Um, the one thing I would look at in non-compete clauses, either in private practice or academia, is the is the distance, right? So um, the ones that have not held up in private practice have put inordinate distances out there, like 40 miles or 50 miles from the institution. Um, and what they mostly try to do is, is block you out of the very close hospitals, five miles to 10 miles. But once they start getting out and really limiting your practice, that's not not really fair to you, and you should talk to them about that. Uh, the second part of that is not just the distance, but the time frame. Um, a non-compete of one year is different than a non-compete of two or three years, and um, I would be loath to sign a contract with a long-term non-compete clause, particularly if you have geographic ties to the community. So, for example, if you have parents or, um, or family members in that community or your spouse or significant other has an important job in the community. So I'd be very careful about that. And the other thing um, is the mal what's called a malpractice tail. So who pays the malpractice is actually very important, but um, is there a tail and who's responsible for the tail? So, for example, if you do leave after five years, you know, you potentially could be sued by, uh, you know, by someone two or three years after that. So you have to carry a malpractice tail and who's responsible to, to pay the cost of that, uh, that tail going out. That is something you can negotiate. Um, uh, and I, I would certainly look into that, uh, and find out who's responsible for the tail. If you are, that means when you leave the practice, you still have to pay the malpractice insurance for a certain number of years. Uh, or you're really opening yourself up to liability um, for that time. So those are some of the sort of tricky negotiating points um, in a contract. Always remember, once you sign it and it's in writing, it's truly a contract, um, and it'd be very difficult to break. So you want to be careful about getting everything in the contract that you talked about and reading it very carefully uh, before you sign it. That's fantastic information. I think it's really um, helpful to hear how you go from uh, communicating about what you want, uh, going back and forth and making sure it's all in there, 
and um, you know, then reviewing the contract uh, and ensuring that you understand all of the various um, pieces that go along with staying, leaving, um, all of those things that I think you're right, no one really teaches us about uh, in medical school or in training. Um, so I think that ends my list of questions, um, and I want to thank you for taking the time um, to provide all of this information. Hopefully, um, the members of our assembly and others will find it helpful uh, as they get um, further in training and start thinking about jobs. Um, so do you have any closing remarks, or uh, shall we just end there? Well, the only thing I, I guess I would say is, look, like this can be really, I mean, fun. It doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, drudgery. Um, going out and looking at practices, uh, be it academia or private practices, fun. Even if you don't end up at that practice, you'll glean some important information and questions you may ask um, later on. And so I, I think don't don't make this into uh, uh, an adversarial uh, uh, part of the practice. And if it becomes adversarial, you really need to think about whether this is the right culture for you, um, because if it's not sort of um, it's not sort of uh, professional and caring. I, I think you'll you'll not enjoy it once you get there. What you don't want to have is a difficult negotiation coming out of the gate right before you get to one of these practices. Um, and take your time. This is not a rush. Don't let any of these places pressure you into signing uh, a, a contract before you're absolutely ready to sign that contract. Um, it's there's no reason for the rush that I think sometimes takes place. It is nice to get it done, right? So you can enjoy the last year of your fellowship or if you're a postdoc um, uh, in your fourth year. Um, it is nice to get it done, so there's some you know certainty about where you're going and what your financial situation is like, but, but don't do that. Don't sign early uh, to, to gain that at the expense of a good contract. And good luck. I, I really, uh, I'm really very proud of what our fellows have done here in going out and looking for a job. And and you should know that of the fellows, and you know we train five a year here at the medical university. Very few of them really change jobs. I can only uh, think of two, two or three, two in the past. I don't know, 15 years or 20 years that have actually changed practices. And interestingly enough, one of them. I, I did warn about uh, uh, that I thought this was not going to be uh, a great um, culture and negotiating uh, tactic, and it turned out it was a private practice where the office manager was the wife of the primary partner in the practice, and that was just a terrible situation from the from the get go. So, take your time, have fun with this, and and good luck to all the fellows out there uh, going out into practice. And 